I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, the COVID 19 pandemic exposed a whole host of things that were being done well and things that were being done less well, or things that we could even do without. Uh, many of us working differently because of COVID-19. But did the pandemic actually show that colleges and universities can cut a lot of the bloat and administration expansion? Uh, that's a question we got to get into. Uh, Sam Abrams is a professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you had a great piece in the in the dispatch that really got to the, the heart of this issue, which is really, is it the professors or the administrators uh, that really got the students through the pandemic? Yeah, so, you know, as a professor myself, <laughs> you know, I was working around the clock, and yeah. so were so many of my colleagues at Sarah Lawrence and, and around the country. We would talk, uh, you know, to not only our students, but amongst ourselves. We put a lot of our own uh, money and other resources into trying to support our students. And, you know, we kept saying, we're all the administrators, this huge class that actually in many places outnumbers us as faculty. And they were nowhere to be found. And uh, we did a survey a couple of months ago where we basically said, let's look back at what happened over the past couple of years. And students, what do you think? You know, who is there for you? And to my very pleasant surprise, the students saw and appreciated the work that the faculty have done and uh, far less so uh, among the administrators that are just omnipresent uh, today. Yeah, and it's such an interesting thing as you as you look at that uh, bloat of bureaucracy. We know those things just continue to expand. doesn't matter what kind of organization it is, but in higher education, you noted in your uh, piece in the dispatch that uh, that Yale University had made some national headlines, uh, probably not the things they were hoping to have headlines about, but uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so, I mean, Yale's in trouble for a lot of things. I mean, right. just the other day, they, they shouted down uh, a totally reasonable speaker at, at the law school. Yale is really leading the charge to a liberal higher education in a very, very dangerous uh, sort of way. But some people have been reporting that Yale has an almost one-to-one -one ratio of every undergrad has an administrator uh, there. So it shows just how bloated it is. Now, many schools are not that bad, uh, but there are too many of them, and they're everywhere. They're in dining halls. They're in student centers. Uh, they're in the various student service bureaucracy, which is just ballooning. They live in the residence halls with the students, telling the students, here's what you can say. Here's what you can't say. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. They're, they're just hovering. They're everywhere. 
they weren't around when I was an undergrad almost uh, 20 years ago. It was not like that. And, uh, you know, this is all under the guise. Universities are there to really provide this 24-7 learning for the undergrads. And, and, and what the pandemic showed is that when push came to shove, the students really didn't turn to them. They didn't want to. They couldn't. Uh, they turned to the professors, people like me. And uh, it's very strong and compelling evidence. Uh, to say to boards, to, to families who take out uh, significant loans to pay for this, that folks, we don't need to spend this kind of money to send our kids to college. They need to cut these staff positions. These staff positions that create, in my view, a lot more problems than this, than they actually solve. Yeah. So this was very, very strong evidence that uh, I was hoping I would see, but of course was very pleasantly surprised showed up in the numbers. It's one thing to sort of see something. It's another to see it in the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, sort of having this uh, image of a, uh, a helicopter bureaucrat for <laughs> for every student telling them what they can and can't do. And yet one of the things that came out uh, in your piece, uh, again, and nice to have the, the data back that, uh, is that the, the students themselves really recognized uh, kind of that hard work and heavy lifting uh, that happens because of relationships that happen because you have a, a teacher or a professor who is both passionate about what they teach and passionate about making sure those they teach uh, can have the, the right kind of experience. And you just can't get that uh, from somebody who lives in cubicle land or who is uh, disconnected uh, with a nice salary. I also think I completely agree. I also think that professors and there there are very many that are problematic. I do not want to deny that there are plenty of folks who see their jobs as ideological, you know, agitators. That's mm. a problem. But I still think for most faculty, we don't do this for the money. We do this for the love of learning. We do this for the love of ideas. And uh, there's still plenty of us who actually care. Yeah. And uh, that came out. And I'll tell you, it really does feel nice to see that because. Uh, you know, I was exhausted doing this, uh, but it also meant so much to try to get these uh, students through this. And as things open up and we have, have normalcy again, to see them again is, is really very meaningful. And, uh, you know, we're going to be able to move forward. But uh, again, faculty have been on uh, the attack for a while, even at a place like Sarah Lawrence. You know, there's no issue adding more administrators. But if we lose a faculty, it's not an automatic rehire. We don't find someone new to fill the spot. Uh, and it's time for, again, uh, students, families, donors, boards to say, Stop doing this. Stop hiring and bloating with these cubicle folks. Let's get people in there who actually want to be part of the community, who want to teach, uh, and, and who want to help you know, raise the students up, which is our job. And it's a, a sacred and very special uh, role we get to play. Yeah, and we obviously need more people like that who have that kind of commitment and focus. I want to dig into the uh, one of the things that you mentioned there in terms of adding. You know, it's always easy to add another a bureaucrat or another administrator. You mentioned uh, some of those that are, you know, if someone leaves, it's not an automatic rehire. Uh, and so often you are getting those people who uh, you, you've got the, uh, you know, the adjunct instructors who are just kind of popping on campus, you know, to teach a single class or here and there, as opposed to the full time professor or uh, those that are really on a path to become part of that community. How do we change that culture? That's tough. Um, one way to change that culture would be, again, to trim a lot of fat, um, to get rid of so many administrators that should open. Uh, up uh, some more funding. Uh, that that would be uh, you know a really big start because the money is fungible and you know study after study have shown especially uh, at public schools like uh, the University of Michigan that the salaries and benefits that these administrators make far outstrip what professors make. So that money could be shifted to establishing these professor roles and, and making sure that they continue to exist. 
Uh, even at Sarah Lawrence, uh, a lot of these, uh, this information is public. If you take a look, so many administrators make significantly more than the faculty members. So that really would be a way to do it. You know, really ask yourself, do we need another diversity, equity, and inclusion administrator? Do we need another housing administrator? Uh, at Sarah Lawrence, we do not have a full-time methods person in politics. That's a problem. We don't have a full-time international relations person. That's a problem. But, you know, we keep getting emails saying, hey, we just hired this, this new administrator to do X, Y, and Z. And it, it's just crazy. And that has to stop. And, again, we have very strong evidence now that the students don't even flock to these people when they have trouble. They tell me regularly they don't want to talk to these administrators, but they'll tell me anything. Right. And uh, I think a lot more faculty have these relationships. And uh, it was nice to be able to, again, to highlight that and have evidence now. You know, you know something, you see it. But when, you know, you have thousands of students repeating it in a, you know, an unbiased survey form, very powerful. Yeah, we, we always talk about investing in the future and <laughs> investing in that rising generation. Uh, and we need to make sure that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, that the donor community, that the that the state and local governments that are funding those things, uh, that they are really recognizing uh, that uh, we are not one administrator away from changing a kid's life. Uh, we're, we're one teacher, we're one professor. We're, we're one passionate uh, teacher away, uh, and that's where the investment has to be. It's a great piece. Uh, we'll post this on our social. Sam Abrams. Again. Thank you, and I, I hope your uh, listeners, uh, you know, who, who have this power, step up because we now know for sure that this is happening. Yeah, uh, and, and it's always great to have the data and the uh, the evidence behind it. Sam Abrams, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College, also a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise. The piece is on the Dispatch. Uh, great insight, Sam. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, is America poised for a clean energy transition or do we need some natural gas a little bit more than maybe we think? Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute is going to break it down for us coming up next. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.